Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14. We'll be reading verses 26 through 33. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 33. <coughs> Pardon me. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Last week, as we considered the very first corporate worship service in the history of humanity, uh, Exodus 24, we saw that it was covenant renewal. That was the essence of that worship service. God renewing his covenant with his people. And I'm going to guess that one of the effects of that was what we just saw right here was the building up of his people, the strengthening and encouraging of them, even as this right here says, let all things be done for building up. By the way, before I go on, notice there, when you come together, each one has a hymn. I think there's a good place there for to say this. Not at the last minute on Sunday morning, but if you ever have a hymn that you think we ought to sing, I have been introduced to several wonderful hymns because you came to me and said, hey, we ought to sing this, that, or the other one. And I appreciate that. Feel free to bring to me the thoughts of some things that we ought to be singing. Continuing in verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Notice here the emphasis upon understanding. Nothing is to be a part of worship which is not understood by the people. Christianity is a religion of the heart, to be sure, but it is also a religion of the mind. And in fact, it begins there. Where does transformation take place, according to Paul in Romans 12? By the renewing of your mind. So everything that we do in a worship service must be understood. The implications of this are really far-reaching. give you a few examples. It's one of the reasons that we don't read and preach in Latin. So that people can actually understand. It's why we support Bible translation work. It's why we no longer use the King James Bible, as great as it is. Because to foster understanding, we need a, a, a version of the Bible that is more familiar to the language we use today. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. With the close of the New Testament, the era of prophecy as its meaning here has passed. And yet we see, so there's not a lot of direct application, yet we do see a continued emphasis upon orderliness and upon understanding. Let people weigh what is said. Verse 30. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Again, another emphasis upon learning, upon understanding. The point of the prophecy was so that people could learn. It's why we emphasize preaching today. God's word is an ancient document set in faraway places with bizarre customs and strange happenings. Preaching, if it is done well helps us understand those things and helps us relate to the ancient texts. We even saw last week where 
in the Old Testament that people needed the Old Testament explained to them. Nehemiah 8. The Levites read the word and they gave the sense of the word. It needed to be explained. Understanding and learning continue to be important here in the New Testament among the Corinthian church. Notice also here the word encouragement, so that all may be encouraged. Now, that word encouragement, biblical encouragement, is not a warm, fuzzy feeling invoked by a kitten who is dangling from a tree branch saying, hang in there. That's kind of our earthly idea of encouragement, but that's not the biblical concept of encouragement. The biblical concept of encouragement is literally to be made courageous. Encourage. Sometimes that is being stoked in the courage we need to share our testimony. Sometimes it's the strengthening we need to obey when obedience is difficult. Sometimes it is the reminder of the gospel when our world seems to be coming apart at the seams and we need to be reminded that our God loves us and is redeeming and uh, remaking this world and our lives in it. Continuing now in verse 32. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Perhaps you've heard the expression, Scripture interprets Scripture. That's what this means right here. The spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. What the, 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 the prophet today, the, 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 the role of the prophet, the one who declares, thus saith the Lord, falls to the preacher in today's church. And what this means is that what the preacher says had better align with what the prophets say. If anything Scott Shaw says ever differs from what Isaiah said, ignore Scott Shaw and go with Isaiah. The spirit of the prophet had better align with the prophets. Preaching needs to be in accord with the word of God. Not my feelings, not my favorite poem, not my dream I had last night. God's word. Finally, in verse 33... Why is all this true? Why does Paul emphasize all these things about worship? Why does he give them direction for how to conduct worship? For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. You know, some of our session meetings and presbytery meetings and general assembly meetings in our denomination can seem insane for all of the work that's done to follow Robert's rules of order and to try to do everything just right and to dot every I and cross every T. And yet in the end, it is the belief that this matters. That our God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. We must be orderly in our worship. We must uh, align our worship in accord with God's word. Let's pray. Spirit, as we... Uh, consider worship as we look at the biblical ideas about worship this morning as we continue that we ask that you would show us how to align it with your word that you would uh, let us better understand what you have ordained for worship we pray this in christ's name amen we argued last week that biblical firsts the first time something appears in the bible These things are exemplars in the Bible. The rest of the Bible looks at Adam and Eve in order to understand marriage. 
the rest of the Bible looks at Abraham in order to understand justification by faith. The rest of the Bible looks to David to have a concept of kingship. And so it was that we looked at Exodus 24, the very first corporate worship service in the history of humanity. And we used it as an exemplar for what worship ought to be like. And the key thing that I hope you got from it, the thing I repeated over and over last week, and I'm going to repeat again right now, is that corporate worship is above all else covenant renewal. Covenant renewal. It is covenant renewal initiated by the offended party, not the offensive party. God the Holy One, against whom we have spent our week sinning, says, come to me, I want to renew my relationship with you. That's worth stopping again and pondering. I don't care what your week has been like. Whether it was a week in which you were steeped in gross sin, God says, right now in this hour, take your eyes off your sin and look to my sacrifice. In Jesus, you are holy. Perhaps it was a week you fell off the wagon. And God says, I don't care. I'm still your God. You're still my child. I love you. Let's get at it again. Perhaps it was a week in which you were not the sinner, but the, the one affected by sin. Hurt by a loved one or a friend. Struggling because of the physical consequences of sin in this world. And God says, come here and be comforted. I have a relationship with you. I have a covenant with you. And part of my promise to you is that the day is coming when all these things will be made right. Covenant renewal is at the center of corporate worship. Well, we saw in Exodus 24 that when the people heard the message from Moses, from God, that he wanted to renew his covenant with them, they responded. And they said, we will do, we, we want to renew the covenant as well, and we will recommit ourselves to keeping all of his commandments, to obeying all of his laws. And they responded by making a vow. Now, if you study the Old Testament, you're going to see that over and over and over and over and over again, the people have to keep making those vows. They have to keep renewing their side of it. Why? Because they keep sinning and they keep failing. But at no point... Does God say, well, okay, you, know, you, you can't beat it, so just stop trying? No. He's committed to it, he's faithful to it, and he will bring it to conclusion. And so we continue to rejoice in his covenant renewal. We continue to want to come on the Lord's day, confident that in him we can work out our salvation, even with fear and trembling. What were the things we saw? What were the elements that we saw last week? We saw scripture reading as Moses read to the people the book of the covenant. We saw preaching as the, there were, clearly there was some kind of direction given because the people responded to that direction. We saw how there were offerings brought. We saw how the whole thing, the whole service was done with an assumption that God was listening. In other words, it was all done with a mindset of prayer. And we saw how communion was shared. 
how the people, the, the, the service closed with the people eating and drinking in the presence of God, participating in the sacrifice that God had made. Scripture reading, preaching, offering prayer, communion. These were the things that were outlined in Exodus 24. And when we looked at the New Testament church in Acts 2.42, those were the same things that we saw the apostles in the early church had devoted themselves to. And when we looked at Paul's instruction to the young preacher Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 4.13, we saw that's what Paul told Timothy to devote himself to. And so we see these elements of worship. <clears throat> you know, if you go back over that list, <clears throat> if you think back what we talked about last week, there is one glaring omission. There is one thing not on the list. It was the thing with which our passage opened this morning, way back in verse 26, 1 Corinthians 14. When you come together, each one has a hymn. Notice the list in Exodus 24 did not include music. It did not address singing in any way. So are therefore, should we leave it out? It wasn't in that one, so therefore it's to be omitted. You know, if you ask the average American churchgoer, what, you know, if you, get, if you stop somebody in the street and just say to him or her, uh, uh, first thing that pops in your head when I say the word worship, most people will respond with something music-related. They'll talk about singing. They'll talk about something that is music-related. If you do a Google image search on the word worship, you get a few that have a preacher somebody preaching. You get a few pictures of communion, a few pictures of somebody praying. More than two-thirds of the pictures are of people singing. That is what we associate with worship in the church today. In fact, if you listen carefully to the language that your friends use, and perhaps you have used, certainly even pastors I know will use, is that they speak of worship not to apply to the whole service, but only to apply to the musical portion of the service. Thus, our worship ended when our singers sat down. That was the worship portion of the service. We associate music with worship. But it wasn't in Exodus 24. So what do we make of that? What's going on there? Well, first of all, we've got to just recognize that the historical accounts in the Bible are notoriously brief. And the book of Genesis alone covers thousands of years and does so in just 50 chapters. Why? Well, in part, writing back then was expensive and difficult. It's nothing for us today. When you were working on an essay for your English class, you would think nothing of balling up your first draft and throwing it away. That did not happen in the ancient world. In fact, it's been estimated that uh, back in the day, like right around the close of the New Testament, to produce one copy of the entire Bible would in today's dollars be somewhere around $120,000. Writing was expensive and difficult. So these tend to be brief accounts. But the other thing, and perhaps the more important thing, is this, to recognize that in, our, in these accounts, the writers are not trying to write a theological textbook. They have a purpose. Matthew's genealogy is stylized to accomplish a purpose. It leaves out generations that we know are in there. We can go to other texts of the scripture and prove that Matthew skips over some generations. Why? Because genealogical accuracy was not his point. 
the kingship of Jesus was his point. And he stylizes it to accomplish that point. Romans 8, what is known as the golden chain, Paul talks about all the glorious things that are part of our salvation. He completely omits faith. Does Paul not think faith is important? Well, we know from Acts that Paul preached faith throughout Asia Minor, across Greece, and into the heart of Italy. Paul knows faith matters. But he leaves it out of Romans 8. Because he was writing a word, a word of encouragement to the people, he was focusing on the side of salvation, those things that God does. And he omitted the side of salvation where we are involved. And that was his purpose. So it is with Moses. He was not writing a treatise on corporate worship. He was writing to a particular time in a particular place, and so he omits things. So we can draw a lot of conclusions based on what Moses does say. But we must be very careful drawing conclusions about what he does not say. And for that, we look at the rest of Scripture. We have already seen from our psalm, which with, with, with which we began the service, our Old Testament reading, our New Testament reading, our uh, uh, sermon text, all of them address music and its role in worship. And so this morning we're going to consider three things. We're going to look at the, 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 the scriptural call for music, the biblical case for why music should be included. We're going to look at the forms of music, and we're going to look at the purposes of music. The biblical case for music, the forms of music, and the purposes of music. First of all, the call for music, or the case for music. I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. Uh, Psalm 33, 3 and 4. Psalm 33, 3 and 4. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Psalm 68, 4. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Now, you might say at that point, I, I, by the way, I've, I've just pulled two quick examples out. There are dozens. And you might say, well, Scott, okay, it's telling individual people that they should sing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there should be corporate singing or that everybody should sing. Well, I would turn to Psalm 68. Psalm 68, verse 32. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. Psalm 96, 1. O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. And in fact, Psalm 96, if you ever do a search on the Old Testament case for foreign missions, Psalm 96 is a central text. The whole rest of the psalm makes the case for why all people should know the Lord and all the earth is told to sing to him. I have only begun to scratch the surface. I am not going to spend more time on this because I don't think I need to persuade you. I think you are all convinced that music is an important part of worship. But there are some scriptures that support that. And by the way, just a reminder, what do we see in the book of Revelation when we catch a glimpse of eternity? There's music on every other page, of the, maybe every page, of the book of Revelation. Music in worship matters. Having made a brief but convincing case for the, for the biblical call for music, I want to slow down and look a little more carefully at the forms of music, the forms of music. Uh, uh, turn back in your bulletin to the New Testament reading, or you can look in your Bibles, I care not which. The New Testament reading, 
Paul uses basically the same language to two different New Testament churches, here to the church at Colossae, also to the church at Ephesus. He makes the same argument. And we see there uh, 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 in verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let me talk a little bit about those because it gives us some sense of the breadth of the forms of music. First of all, psalms. Uh, uh, it, it's kind of cool in the Greek. If I, if I, I'm terrible at pronouncing foreign languages, but if I could, you'd recognize these words. For example, uh, uh, p- uh, uh, it's psalmois. They pronounce the p, we don't, but psalmois. It, it's psalms. You recognize that word. Uh, um, it's the biblical hymnal. It's that largest book in the Bible, way back in the center of the Bible, called the book of Psalms, and it's from which we have God-inspired, God-ordained songs to sing. Our song that we uh, sang this morning, All People That on Earth Do Dwell, a version of Psalm 100. And here we're told, Paul tells the New Testament church to sing these psalms. I also want to point out, though, in the places where he tells them. To the church at Colossae and to the church at Ephesus. These are not the churches in the Holy Land. These are not churches that are thoroughly Jewish. In fact, the, the, these are churches that were increasingly Gentile. Increasingly Greek. To them, he says, sing the Psalms. I know... That if you do research on church growth, if you read the books on how to make a megachurch, not a one of them will tell you to sing the psalms. Because it ain't cool. They're old. They're long. Some of them are weird. And yet here we have Paul telling the New Testament church, even in the midst of its growing Gentile character, he says, sing the psalms. Speak to one another with psalms. I am going to, right now, publicly in front of all of you, say this. I'm going to commit myself as the one who is supposed to lead us in worship to introducing and singing more psalms. We cannot claim to be a biblically faithful church and ignore a direct command like this. And I apologize that it's taken me four years to get there. But we're there, and we're going to reform. We're going to sing psalms. By the way, if you know a singable version of one of the psalms, I'd love to hear about it. Please share it with me. The next word there is the word hymnois. Uh, 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 hymnois. You can hear the word hymn in there. Hymnois. It's a hymn. It tells us to sing hymns. So what is a hymn? I want to make a listing of what hymns are not. It's funny when you talk to church people about how they use the word hymn. Or I will say how they misuse the word hymn. So let me tell you what hymns are not before I tell you what it is. Hymns are not songs that are at least 50 years old. That's not a hymn. Hymns are not songs that are bound in a book. That's not what defines a hymn. Hymns are not those songs played on the organ or piano. That's not what defines a hymn. Hymns are not songs that have a certain degree of complexity. I can remember in my uh, uh, early years, some of the 
the people in the church where I was making comments about, um, they would ridicule what they called 7-Eleven songs. Songs that had seven words that were sung 11 times over. You know, because a hymn has to have a degree of doctrinal complexity. No, it doesn't. What do the four living creatures and the elders sing forever? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We can sing simple songs, and they are hymns, if they meet the criteria. Hymns are most definitely not the songs you like. Your personal taste does not define a hymn. So what is a hymn? Well, let me point out to you where you know the word hymn outside of the church. The Marine Corps hymn. From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, we'll fight our nation's battle. My sons are in the army. They're going to be really upset that I chose the Marine Corps hymn. It's a Marine Corps. The battle hymn of the Republic. These are hymns that say practically nothing about God. What is a hymn? Very simply, a hymn is a song of praise. A hymn is a song of praise. If the content, if the words praise, they are a hymn. And that's what it's telling us to do, that we ought to sing praises to our God. Psalms, hymns, and hode. Hode, O-D-E, you would pronounce it ode. The Greeks pronounced it ode. Spiritual songs. An ode, you know, you're familiar with that in poetry. An ode is something that is written to tell you about, to extol a particular person. There is a great degree of overlap between an ode and a hymn. But in short, the ode can just relate facts without necessarily praising those facts. That's the subtle difference there. The translation spiritual song is a good one. By the way, that's the Greek word that we see in Revelation where they sing a new song. It's that same Greek word. It's this idea of extolling and telling you about the person. So one of the things we see is that we have some varying lyrical content. We have psalms. We have those that are God-ordained songs inspired by his Holy Spirit. We have hymns, things that gifted men and women of the church have written to declare the praise of God. We have odes, spiritual songs that simply talk about the things of the Lord and relate certain facts. And we see all of them commanded for the New Testament church. They all have a place. We also see in the Bible varying musical forms. Without looking up all the verses, I'll just point out that much of the music of the Bible appears to be accompanied by instrumentation. We see percussion. We see descriptions of drums and of cymbals and of tambourines, of cassinets in 2 Samuel 6, of bells being used. We see evidence of winds. We have crude horns, like the shofar, And then we have more sophisticated wind instruments like the trumpet and various other wind instruments in the Bible. We have stringed instruments. 
harps and lyres. I want to talk a little bit about the lyre because it is just a good, it makes a good point about some of our preconceptions of biblical music. So give me just a moment. So I want to describe a lyre. I'm going to read from a scholarly uh, description of the ancient instrument called the lyre that I found online. A classical lyre has a hollow body or sound chest, also known as a sound box or resonator. Um, By the way, which in ancient Greek tradition was made out of a turtle shell. Interesting. Extending from this sound extending from this sound chest are two raised arms. Okay, we have only the one here. They are connected near the top by a crossbar or yoke. An additional crossbar is fixed to the sound chest, and it makes the bridge which transmits the vibrations of the strings. Okay? Um, the strings do not differ in much differ much in length. More weight may have been gained for the deeper notes and less for the higher notes. The strings were of gut. These are steel, but anyway. Um, They were stretched between the yoke yoke and the bridge, and a tailpiece, like a violin, uh, might have been included. The pick or plectrum was in constant use. It was plucked. The thing, uh, uh, it was held in the right hand, the, the, the plectrum, the pick, to stroke the strings. The fingers of the left hand touched the lower strings, presumably to silence them when they were not wanted. I'll tell you what, the description of a lyre sounds an awful lot like a modern guitar. Let's just stop with the silliness that the praise of God has to be done on this or that instrument. David did not carry an organ through the fields with him. He probably carried a guitar. Now, does that mean I don't like the organ? No, it doesn't mean that at all. God has given us people who are gifted on the organ, and we ought to make use of it. But let's not for one moment imagine that there is somehow one instrument which is more fitting for the praise of our God. But we also see in the scriptures plenty of evidence of unaccompanied music, singing a cappella. Jesus and his disciples, on the night of the Last Supper, they sang hymns. And in all probability, it was a cappella. It was sung without accompaniment. The synagogues out of which the New Testament church grew generally sang a cappella. The evidence of the synagogue tradition was to sing a cappella. And the early church came out of the synagogues. And, of course, there are numerous commands in the scriptures to lift up your voices. And the implication being that, uh, that there may not necessarily have been any instrumental accompaniment. We have freedom of the content, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we have freedom of the, the musical setting with regard to the, whether it's accompanied or not. And if it's accompanied, by what it's accompanied. We see all of these set forth in the scriptures. We also want to consider the various musical settings. I won't go through all of these, but here's a quick sampling. Psalm 9-1, to the tune of the death of the sun. Psalm 22, to the tune of the doe of the morning. Psalm 45, to the tune of lilies. 
Psalm 56, to the tune of a dove on distant oaks. I like that one. A dove on distant oaks. Sounds pretty. There are at least five, uh, seven more psalms that are set to a particular tune, and at least five different tunes. A couple of those are to the same tune. So we have different musical settings. Now, what does that imply? That there was no one set way that the worship of God had to be set to music. Now, would any of those have been rap music? Hard to imagine David out there rapping. Maybe. But here's what I can guarantee you. It sounded like the music of his day. That from a distance, when you could not pick out the lyrics yet, when you could only hear the tune over the fields as you were walking up toward his flock, the tunes that David was singing would have sounded just like any other lonely shepherd boy. The instrumentation, the music, the tune setting were the things of his day. He took advantage of what was available to him and turned it to the praise of his God. One of the implications of that is that I think we have to allow for the possibility that maybe worship in Appalachia will sound different than it does in Manhattan. Perhaps the churches in South Florida will have a Latin flavor that the churches in Minnesota won't have. Maybe, just maybe, it's okay if a black congregation sings black gospel music. There is not one right setting for the tunes. But that also means this, dear Shore Harvest. We need to find the music, the style, the setting that resonates with us, that allows us to declare the glory of God, that fosters our singing. If the problem is the style or the setting of music, if that is what's hindering our singing, then we need to change it. We need to be singers of the glory of God. And we need to find the, the conduit by which we can best do that. And we need to be allowing for one another's differences in here. We need to accept the fact that you might really love the first hymn and not so much the third one, but the person next to you loves the third one and not so much the first one. And we're going to have to recognize that if the content glorifies God and the setting enables a brother or sister to proclaim his praises, then it's fitting and it's appropriate. It's an interesting thing. I will point out the irony. What happens when we age physically? In terms of our taste, we tend to get into a rut and be unwilling to change. We tend, as we get older, to want it the way we want it and not be willing to accept any differences. But what should happen as we mature spiritually? We should be willing to make allowances for our brothers and sisters. As we mature spiritually, we ought to be more quick 
to give to, our, to the others around us the way they would want it to be. What an ironic, unworldly thing it would be if a congregation like ours was happy to sing whatever was necessary for the newest Christian in the room to be comfortable singing. Wouldn't that be amazing? The, uh, uh, what we see here is that the Bible calls clearly for music to be a part of worship, and we see that it allows for different forms, different forms of music in terms of the, the content Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, different forms of music in terms of the, the, mu- the uh, 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 musical quality, whether it's accompanied or unaccompanied, different accompaniments, and different forms of music based on different settings and tunes that it might be put to. I want us to finally look at the purposes of music. And I want us to note some key biblical arguments for the purposes of music. The first one I won't spend a lot of time on, because again, I don't think you need to be convinced. But we see that one of the biblical purposes for music is the worship of God. And there are many places we can go for that. Music allows us to worship God. A slight difference, although closely related, we see that music fosters the praise of God. Now, those two things are heavily overlapping, but they are distinct. I'll give a great, uh, a great example of this, is Psalm 150. Uh, uh, by the way, the last six psalms, Psalm 145 through 150, are known as the Halal Psalms. Uh, um, when I first say Halal, you may not recognize it, but if I add the Yah on the end, Halal, Yah, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, they are praise psalms, they are hymns. Okay? And Psalm 150 says this, Praise him with a trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. A clear call that songs, music, should be used to the praise of our God. Music is used to foster worship. Music is used for the praise of our God. And music can be for the expression of emotion. For the expression of emotion. Look at James 5, verse 13. Turn over to James 5, verse 13. Hebrew, James. James 5, 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Music is an appropriate expression of our emotional state. By the way, that's very different than the way a lot of churches use music. It doesn't say that we should use music to stir up an emotional state. We are not going to be in the business of trying to get you uh, uh, emotionally worked up through the music. But the music can be an expression of our emotional state. A fourth uh, a purpose of music we see in the scriptures um, is to learn the scriptures. Music is a way to know the Bible. Psalm 32 links the idea of shouts of deliverance and songs of, uh, of rejoicing 
being tied to learning God's word. We saw in our New Testament reading how Paul talks about the need to, to uh, 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 speak to one another you know, and share the, God, the wisdom of God with one another and to do so through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We learn the scriptures through music. Many of you know the heart of the book of Lamentations without knowing that you know it because you know the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And the examples go on and on. We know scripture because of the music to which it is set. By the way, that's a great way to learn the truths of God. Why do advertisers tack on jingles to their commercials? Because they know it's going to stick. When we learn music, when we learn music that's full of the word of God, it sticks and it is a blessing for us. A fifth purpose for music. Turn over to Psalm 40, verse 3. Psalm 40, Verse 3. Psalm 40, verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Okay, so we have a musical setting here. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Notice how the psalmist says that music can be a means of evangelism. Music can be a means of bringing others to know the Lord. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Many of you have a testimony of how Christian radio led you to the Lord. Of how you went to a concert as a young person and it was the first time you heard about Christ. Many of us know that it was in the midst of singing a particular song that it went click in our brains and the light came on and the Spirit used that for us to come to a recognition of our need for the gospel. Music can have an evangelistic purpose. But the, the, the sixth and final one I want to look at is right back to our New Testament reading, if you've still got that open there in the bulletin on page 7. Colossians three fourteen through 16. Above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Interesting choice of words there. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. There's that idea of learning. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Notice how in the midst of telling the body, how the, 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 the Colossians, how to live together as the body of Christ... Paul flows right into one of the natural ways to accomplish that is by music. Isn't it interesting that while our singing ought to be theocentric, God-focused, it has anthropomorphic, anthropocentric implications. Man-centered. We sing to God, but it affects one another. We declare the praise of God, but it impacts each other. It's not hard to figure out how this is true. When you know the person next to you is going through an incredibly difficult time, and all of a sudden you hear them joyfully declare their trust in God through music, what's it do to you? You say, wow, if he or she 
can sing with that kind of joy in the midst of what they're going through. When the person next to you, when you know they're battling sin, and yet they declare the great grace of Jesus Christ through song, it breaks your heart. And you're reminded that grace is available to you. When we sing, we impact one another. That's what Paul is saying to the Colossian church, that your singing has benefit for each other. Yes, it is God-centered. Yes, it is God-focused. Yes, it is about him. But it impacts one another. Think about the negative side of that. Think about the ways that we might sing in a way that doesn't edify and encourage those around us. There are ways I can say I love you to Becky a lot of different ways. Some of which don't necessarily communicate what the words literally mean. When we mumble through our songs, what does that say to the person next to us about what we really believe about the words in front of us? And some will say to me, and many have said to me over the years, but pastor singing is just not my thing. Let me put that in some context. If someone said to me, pastor, monogamy is just not my thing, would that make it okay? Heterosexuality is just not my thing. Kindness is not my thing. Graciousness is not... Well, that one hits a little bit close to home. <clears throat> is it okay to be unkind just because you are unkind? Gentleness is not my thing. Prayer is not my thing. You see the problem? Obedience includes making those things your thing. And just like all the rest of them, it comes with practice. It comes with doing it. Kindness fosters kindness. Gentleness fosters gentleness. Prayer leads to more prayer. And singing with joy, with thankfulness in your heart to God will foster more thankfulness. We need to be a congregation who joyfully energetically, enthusiastically declares the glory of our God in song. Not because it's our thing, but because he's our God. Because he wants a relationship with us. Because he has chosen to renew his covenant regardless of the week we've had. Despite all of our sin. Despite our unfaithfulness. He says, come back each Lord's day and know me again. That is a wonderful reason to lift up our songs with great enthusiasm. Lord, let us see your heart for covenant renewal. And as we see it and as we're reminded of what it costs you in Jesus Christ our Savior... Let us overcome our self-conscious feelings about our singing. Let us 
overcome our, our hesitancy and let us ring out with enthusiasm even through song. And let that be for one another encouragement, uplifting, uh, strengthening each of us around. Let us each sing in a way that says to everyone else, I believe this. I'm excited about this. This is important in my life. Lord, we know this is going to be a a slow process of of learning to sing with richer, deeper, uh, 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 fuller voices. This is going to be a long time in, in coming around on these things. And yet, Lord, we, for your glory and for the sake of your name, we want this. Thank you that you have made music something that taps into our emotions, that allows us to respond uh, with our hearts. Let us do so through our lips in a way that declares your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.